Genesis 13. Uh, last time we were together, we thought through the, the elements of Genesis 12, uh, thinking about faith, understanding uh, Abram going down into Egypt. We, we spent a week understanding Egypt, and we thought through the nature of stepping out uh, in faith and, and, and com- being compelled by faith, staying on that theme. This week, faith is going to uh, come home a little bit. Faith is going to root itself in our lives. I'm going to ask you to, by faith, take a, a, a step. Perhaps some of you in your lives aren't in a place where you're going to need this this morning, but we're going to come to a topic uh, that's going to stretch you a little bit as, uh, within our, our application after we talk through what, what we're reading here in, the, in uh, Genesis 13. And then it's going to take that kind of faith that we've been talking about to live these things out in our lives, and that's the point. That Abram steps into the land of faith, and he has made these steps of faith, and now it's time to put his money where his mouth is. Now it's time to put uh, his feet, his, his, his shoulder to the, to the grindstone, whatever, whatever analogy we want to use, whatever metaphor we want to use. And he's going to need to live out the faith that he claims and, and, and that he is, is being told to live out for the promises that lay before him. So Abram is in Egypt with his family at the end of Genesis chapter 12. His wife has been restored after having been taken by Pharaoh. He is sent away in peace. And we pick up our narrative today in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, where we read this in verses 1 through 4. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So Abram comes out of Egypt with his people and his possessions, and he journeys, the Bible says, into the south. Now, this is a bit of an interesting statement that we need to make sure that we understand properly, that we want to understand and orient ourselves to. When the Bible speaks of Abram's journey, it is entirely oriented to the land of promise. It is entirely oriented to the land of Canaan. And this is not uncommon in Scripture, whether you're talking about prophecy or narrative, that wherever the south or the north or the east or the west is, that is oriented to the land of Israel specifically. Specifically, So the Bible says that Abram left Egypt and he went into the south. But how is it that he goes up into Egypt, into the south? It doesn't mean that Abram continued from Egypt southward into Africa. Rather, it means that Abram journeyed from Egypt back to the south part of the land of Canaan. Back into the South. We have a region in this country called the South, right? And uh, the South is a region uh, that comprises, uh, we say, you know, Tennessee and South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama. And, and, and so we have the South. But if you, my, my wife and I spent some time on the Florida Panhandle. Uh, it was more or less just Eastern Alabama. Um, but if you're in Miami, you're not really in the South. You have to go North to get to the South, right? Because the South is a region and there is a particular essence to that region. And, and that's sort of the same idea here that Abram went out of Egypt into the South. That would be the South part of the area around uh, Masada and, and kind of that, that Southern region just South of the Dead Sea there. And that is the South into which the Southern portion of the land of promise, right? Uh, Abram returned into 
the land of Canaan. Now, following his time in Egypt, which from our place and perspective, whether or not this was the full implication of the text, and we already talked about that, um, whether or not Abram had actually been promised Canaan at this point, I believe that he had been. I believe that he knew what he was doing when he went into Egypt. But either way, thematically in the Bible, Egypt is a place of faithlessness. Egypt is the world, the, the flesh, the devil. Egypt is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right? That's what Egypt represents. We walked through that theme already and introduced it to you. So either way, we would, we would believe that this was a mistake. He repents of that mistake and he returns to the land of promise. And this is really what repentance means in its purest form. Repentance is a change of mind that brings about a change of action or a change of mind that brings about a change of direction. Repentance is not always accompanied by sorrow, nor does repentance demand sorrow. As a matter of fact, as we look at the nature of repentance, at least as our King James Bible uses it, and as we see it uh, both in, in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word repentance does not even necessarily demand or imply error or wrong. We're going to talk about this a little bit. Well, it'll be a little while now because we were, the next few weeks are going to be a little different at Legacy Baptist Church. But um, when we get back and we get rolling again in Amos, we're going to talk about the fact that the Bible says that God repents. Now, we know that God has not done wrong. We know that, God, that there are not unanticipated circumstances that present themselves to God. So then what does it mean that God repents? And when we see that this idea is, is realized in God, we understand that that. Repentance does not necessarily imply error or wrongdoing. Uh, now, this it would be what we would believe to be the case with Abram. There are times where, uh, as, as uh, 2 Corinthians says, godly sorrow can lead to repentance. But uh, we also recognize times where repentance is not necessarily contingent upon sorrow. But as we said... It's a change of mind, which brings about a change of action or direction. So we, we see a, a kind of picture of repentance here as Abram goes down to Egypt and then he realizes that he is not in the place where he needs to be and he works his way back to the land of promise. And the Bible says that he went on his journeys and he went to the south and then from the south he finds his way back up to that place between Bethel and Hai, where he had been originally. Remember, first he went to Sychem, which would have been Shechem. And then after that, he finds his way to that place between, a uh, mountain between Bethel and Hai, where in both of those places, he built an altar unto the Lord. And now he's back in that place. And he again begins to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, one more quick note before we move on. To this point in the land of Canaan, we have heard about Sychem, Bethel, or that would be Shechem, Bethel, and Hai. We correspond these to those places that we learn about specifically later on in the Judges and in the Kings and Chronicles of Shechem, Bethel, and Hai. But they don't necessarily have those names yet when Abram is there. And we need to understand how this works. We know that Bethel was not named Bethel in Abram's day, and we know that because we have the account in the Scriptures when it was named Bethel. And it was named Bethel when Jacob was leaving his family to go up north because his brother Esau wanted to kill him because he stole the blessing. And he goes to this place and he sees this ladder, angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And he says, this is the gate of heaven. And he calls that place Bethel, the house of God, Bethel, Beth being house, El being God, house of God. So Jacob gives it its name, Bethel. And this is what we call in, in literature an anachronism. 
An anachronism is an inconsistency in chronology or chronological order where, in this case, a city which was not yet named Bethel is called Bethel. And this is not an error. This is intentional and this is understandable. It's a linguistic strategy that does need to be understood or else things can get a little confusing. The essence of an anachronism is that the author in Genesis is relating his readers to exactly where it was Abram was going using the places and the landmarks of the author's day rather than of the traveler's day or of Abram's day. So we might presume that Shechem may not yet have been called Shechem. Shechem we know was called Shechem in Israel's day because Shechem's son takes Dinah and actually takes her without, without marriage and then... It turns out that uh, uh, Judah and, was it Reuben and Judah, I believe, or Simeon and Judah, I forget which ones, but they go in and they kill all the sons of Shechem, right? And, and so the place is called Shechem because Shechem lives there and he's an extremely powerful man in the land and that becomes a city around his family. So it's probably not yet necessarily called Shechem. The man Shechem may not even necessarily have been in that place yet, but he used the city of Shechem because Shechem would be a place that would be familiar to the readers, The same can be said for Bethel. We already talked about where Bethel came from. Now, another thing that anachronisms do for us is they give us insight into when a text was written. In other words, we know that the text of Genesis was not written prior to Jacob's day. And we know that because the landmarks are not there until Jacob's day. Now, we presume that Genesis was written by Moses We're going to see this come up again in Genesis 14, which again will be in a few weeks from now, where we see the the city of Dan mentioned. And this passage in Genesis 14 is often used by textual critics to imply that Moses could not have written the book of Genesis because the city of Dan is mentioned and the city of Dan is not established until after the death of Moses. And we're going to address that controversy and see if if that, that, that is in fact necessary or if the anachronism might be able to be understood in a different way, whereby we can still uh, rest in a measure of confidence that Moses did, in fact, write the book of uh, Genesis. So uh, we, we do need to be careful with anachronisms, the degree to which we invest ourselves in speculative strategies of dating based upon anachronisms, but these things do help us. And it also helps us remember that we are dealing with something, we are, we are dealing in time. That we see these literary strategies reminds us that this is a book that is written in time, and it is, in fact, a historical narrative. If you have any more questions about that, you'll come see me um, uh, at another time, and we can, we can uh, answer your questions. Continuing then in the text, the Bible says in verses 5 through 7 of Genesis 13, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together." And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. So we have already read in verse 2 that Abram was a man who was very rich in cattle and in silver and in gold. And some of that riches may have come from the Pharaoh when the Pharaoh dealt with, 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 with Sarai and everything, but uh, we...
presume that he was already quite wealthy and well-to-do when he entered into Egypt. But now we find in verse 5 that Lot is an adult man and that he also has flocks and herds and tents. Uh, he has possessions of his own and he is also a wealthy and a great man. And this began to become a problem. So that the land that they lived was oversaturated by the combined herds of Lot and of Abram. And this was causing conflict between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram because they were fighting over things. And we'll see that this is not necessarily a, a, a unheard of thing with Isaac and Jacob. We're going to find that they're going to dig wells and that the people of the land are going to contest with them over the wells and uh, where there's water and, and, and whose, well, uh, whose property the well is on and who owns it. Uh, because once you were allowed to dig a well, it was kind of like st- staking your claim on that property. So people would come and say, I see you dug a well on my land. And then they'd fill in the well because they're not allowed to have a well on someone else's land and such. So these things are going to happen. But what Abram is very grieved about here is that it's happening between brethren, between him and his nephew. And this, so this created strife. And on top of that, there were others in the land as well, the Canaanite and the Perizzite. Now, these may have been mentioned for a couple of reasons. First, maybe it was that, that uh, the implication there was that it's not as if Abram and Lot, who were in a particular section between Bethel and Ai, it's not as if they could just expand a little more because the Canaanite and the Perizzite were on sides of them. So they were slightly constrained. That may be what it means. Or it may mean that Abram was getting a little self-conscious. He's already had a little bit of a flub of testimony in Egypt. He, he, he's already had a, a time where he has not reflected well upon the testimony of the Most High God. And maybe he's a little bit concerned that, that if, if these conflicts continue, that there's going to be a continued problem as it relates to testimony. Uh, one or the other, it seems more likely that it's the first reason um, that, that seems a little more practical. But both reasons perhaps are in play. And so it was causing interpersonal problems. And Abram goes about to solve this problem so that we read in verses 8 and 9. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we, are brethren, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou wilt depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abram reflects here that he does not want strife between himself and Lot. And he does a very gracious thing. He makes a a deal of sorts with Lot. He says, choose whatever direction you want to go. You go that direction, and whatever direction you choose, you go that direction, and I will go the other direction, and we'll put enough distance between ourselves so that we can both live without conflict. We'll talk more about this in our application. That's going to be the focus of our application time together today. But for now, we continue understanding the narrative. So Lot can choose whatever direction he wants to go, and he's going to go in that direction, and Abram is going to go in the opposite direction and put this distance between them. So we read in verses 10 through 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked, and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. 
So Lot looks around and he sees what's called the Plains of Jordan, the plains surrounding the Jordan River, the Jordan River Valley going down from uh, what we call the Sea of Galilee. Of course, it wouldn't be called that at that time, uh, but going down through the, 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 following the Jordan down to the Dead Sea. And then it says going down towards Zoar, which would have been south of the Dead Sea. This is the area where Sodom and Gomorrah were before they were destroyed. We'll get to that in Genesis chapter 19. And this is a very fertile and well-watered area. So fertile, in fact, that the Bible says it was even as the garden of the Lord. Presumably, the reference here is to the Garden of Eden. We can imagine from our time earlier in Genesis, as we thought through the Garden of Eden, just how fertile and beautiful the Garden of Eden, in fact, was. We believe that it was in what we might consider to be a perfect climate. It was before the flood and all of the climatary uh, changes, the climate changes that happened during the time of the flood. Uh, we recognize that it was after the flood that the seasons were implemented and established, which means that at that time, we would presume that things were temperate uh, 365 days a year. We know that there was a mist that came out of the ground to water the earth, um, that presumably it did not rain or, or, or um, that uh, it was not a, a necessary thing to have rain until after the flood. And so there was a mist. There was effectively like a greenhouse environment is what we might presume. And then it's also likened here to the land of Egypt, which due to the massive delta that would be the outlet to the Nile River would have been a place of tremendous fertility and richness. And the Jordan River Valley, the Bible says, and the plains that were there are described similarly fertile. One of the prime places on earth, we might imagine, for livestock. As a matter of fact, as we continue through the text, even as we're thinking of in the book of Amos on our Sunday evenings, the area of Bashan, where livestock would be, that was in the area just east of the, the Sea of Galilee and around that Jordan River Valley. So Lot chose the plains of Jordan, the Bible says, and he journeys east from that mountain between Bethel and Hai, and Abram remains in the west. Lot dwells in the cities of the plains, pitching his tent toward Sodom. Now, here we are introduced to the city of Sodom for the first time. And all we know is that this city resides in the Jordan River Valley and that, as verse 13 says, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. We will learn more about what this means in the coming chapters, particularly chapters 18 and 19 of Genesis. And the point of the narrative, we don't know yet, without looking ahead as far as why it is that the Bible is telling us about Sodom and Gomorrah. But of course we know, and actually the writer presumes that the reader knows as well, reminding us that this is written later, that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will in fact be destroyed. Now one other thought which interested me as I was thinking about this this week. The Bible says that Jordan, that the Jordan River Valley was fertile as the garden of the Lord and as, the, as Egypt. And this kind of fascinated me. We might wonder if the Jordan River Valley was fertile like Egypt, why was it then that Abram sojourned down into Egypt? Are we presuming that the famine touched the Jordan River Valley? Or was it that the famine touched the West 
And when it touched the west, Abram went down into Egypt instead of going into the Jordan River Valley. And this is something that I haven't come to a, a full understanding of, but I do have a theory. And my theory, which, which is, 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 I don't know exactly what to do with it, but I, I'm wondering if Abram, looking at Sodom and Gomorrah and seeing just how wicked they were, said, I'd rather go down to Egypt than go into the Jordan Valley. I would actually rather go down and take my chances in Egypt that find my way over to anywhere near Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we get to Genesis 14 and we see what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14, and then when we get to Genesis 18 and 19, we see that, uh, that, that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll understand the depth of their wickedness and the consequences thereof. And that might undermine a little bit the message that I had last week as it related to Abram sojourning into Egypt, but that's okay. My, my, my points can be undermined as long as God's points are made. Um, that's, that's perfectly acceptable, right? Um, so that was something that was running through my mind this week, and I wanted to share that. I haven't, I ha- the, the thought hasn't incubated enough, but it's an interesting idea, is it not? That the plains of Jordan were said to be as fertile as the Garden of God, as fertile as Egypt, and yet Abram ended up in Egypt rather than ending up in the plains of Jordan. But Lot ends up in the plains of Jordan, and it's going to be a real problem for him. Continuing then in verses 14 through 18. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plains of Mamre, which is before Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So in verse 14, we find the first elaboration of the promises that God made while... the, the first elaboration upon the promise that God has already made to Abram when he was in Haran and possibly going all the way back to Ur of the Chaldees. Recall that promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God told Abram that he would make of him a great nation, that he would bless Abram, that he would bless those who blessed Abram, that he would curse those who cursed Abram, and that through Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on this when we get to Genesis 15, talking through a threefold covenant that we see there within the, the, the scope of those promises and how those are elaborated on. But one facet of that covenant is extended or expanded upon in Genesis 13. And as we talked about last time, whether or not Abram was actually told that Canaan was the land of promise in Genesis chapter 12... It's not formalized until here in Genesis 13. This is the first time we actually read in the text God saying, this is the land, north, south, east, and west, from where you are, all of this land I'm going to give you. And from this point on, we'll see that Abram, that Isaac, and that Jacob are significantly more invested in the land. Whereas Abram might have been comfortable wandering down to Egypt a little while ago, he's significantly more invested now in wanting to stay in this land and make sure that he's in this land because this is the land explicitly that God has promised to him and to his posterity. Notice also that God's promise regarding the land is perpetual in nature. With God telling Abram that the land would be his 
and his seed forever in verse 15. It says, for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Making this what we would call an unconditional covenant. A covenant not dependent upon Abram, not dependent upon his posterity's actions, not given for a time, only be taken away, but no conditions to Abram for the fulfillment of this promise, only that he and his seed would have perpetual rights to the land. Now, a couple of weeks ago in our Amos series, I made an appeal for why it is we at Legacy Baptist Church believe that God still has a plan for the physical, or we might say the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. Why we do not believe that God has wholesale replaced the nation of Israel with the church as it relates to his covenants and his promises. To this uh, end, we would believe that the promise that we find here is still in effect. And again, we'll talk significantly more about what that looks like, why we believe that. We will dig in quite, um, quite deeply when we get to Genesis 15. But today is not that day. Today we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. Continuing then in these final verses in Genesis chapter 13, God promises not only the land to Abram, but also that his descendants would be vast. Described here that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth. Now, this is most likely more of an idiomatic idea. We find it throughout the, the, the Old Testament in sort of an idiomatic fashion, uh, not necessarily to be taken in the fullest literal sense as much as the idea that, that his descendants would be vast. In the same way that if I told you it's raining cats and dogs outside, uh, you would not go looking for furry animals falling from the sky, but you would understand an idiomatic expression that would imply that it is raining extremely hard. So we would regard this as an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language that enables us to see beyond the literal sense and regard its meaning that Abram's posterity would grow and prosper in a truly significant way. The, the idea would be an innumerable host throughout the years. And then finally, the Bible says that God commands Abram to walk through the land in confidence, knowing that God would give to him this land, that wherever he went, that was his land by God's decree, though as of this point, we'll see in Genesis 15, he is still very much a sojourner in that land. And the text says that this compelled Abram to move from, between that, from that mountain between Bethel and Hai, and he moved into a different area, into the plains of Mamre, near the city of Hebron. Now again, the city of Hebron was probably not necessarily there yet, but Mamre was a man who lived in those plains. He was a great man. He was a wealthy man. He was a man that had a, a house of his own. He was a man that, that, that had a household, as Abram did. And we'll find uh, Mamre come into play next in Genesis 14 as a confederate with Abram at that time. So Abram goes into the plains of Mamre, and there he did what he always does when he settles in a new place. He built an altar so that he could worship the Lord. And we'll pick up in Genesis 14 next time we're together. But for today, I'd like us to think back a little bit. I've given you all the, the history, and I've given you the thought process, and we've explained the text now I'd like to go in a little bit of a different direction, thinking back onto that interaction between Abram and Lot that we saw in verse 8. In that verse, there was conflict between Abram and Lot's families. And Abram did not want that conflict. So he 
chose to defer to Lot. But at this point, God had not told him, look north, west, south, east, and it's all yours. All he knew is that there was a land that was promised to him and he, was, he, he went to the south to, to be in that land. But he says to Lot, take whatever way you want and I'll go the other way so that there's not strife between us. Specifically in verse 8. Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Abram has a goal in mind here. And that goal is not material gain. That goal is not locational prosperity. That goal is relational wellness. He does not want strife between himself and his nephew. He rightly understood that the relationship between him and his nephew was of far more importance than where his cattle would be grazing. So that if Abram was going to choose between having the land of his choice or having a right relationship with his nephew, he was willing to defer the material thing to his nephew if only that he might maintain the relationship between them. And this is what I'd like us to think about in our application today. Abram, though he was the wealthy one, he was the powerful one, though he was the patriarch, though he was the one that was in charge, right? Lot came with him. He was responsible for Lot. Lot was going to honor him. Lot was going to defer to him. Though this was the case, he gave Lot the privilege of deciding where he wanted to go. And Abram, if you will, took whatever was left over. Now, the analogy kind of eventually breaks down, right? These were both still very wealthy men. There was land to go around, so on and so forth. We understand Abram didn't actually, uh, he, did, he did not eventually end up losing anything for his decision. And Lot ended up making a terrible choice that is going to lead to all sorts of problems for him as well as for the future of Israel. And so we can certainly find reasons why maybe Abram did not... Um, make what we would consider to be much of a sacrifice. But in theory, at this point, when Abram and Lot are both in that mountain between Bethel and Ai, and he's telling Lot, you choose whichever way you want to go and I'll go the other direction, he is making himself vulnerable to the choices of Lot. Lot may say, I'm going to go to that place that's open and Abram's going to have to go to a place where there's other people that he's going to have to contend with. Or he may go to the place of fertility, and, and we might presume for Abram, and the fact that he didn't go there and he went to Egypt instead, maybe the Jordan River Valley was out, off the table for Abram. So where was he going to go? How was he going to find a place to settle? So the, yeah, the analogy eventually breaks down, but you can see the principle there. And for those of you that have been in a situation where there has been a decision to make between standing your ground and getting your way, at the expense of relationship, or perhaps yielding something in order to preserve relationship, the practical impact of that yielding isn't really the important matter, is it? The important matter is the relationship. It's about the principle. Now, when we think about conflict, when we think about relationship, there's a reason why, there's reasons why when, when relationships break down and there's conflict, that conflict continues. I'm going to get what's due to me. I was the one that was wronged. That person was wrong. That person was more wrong than me. And this is the problem that I'd like to highlight today. 
We might have read in the text a narrative where Abram and Lot begin to squabble. And Lot says, no, it's your herdman that started it. And Abram says, no, I heard it was your herdman that started it. And then you would see the breakdown of communication. Well, this herdman told me that. Well, this herdman told me that. Well, who's right? Well, who's lying? Who's wrong? Well, I can't get a straight story. Neither can I. It must have been you. No, it must have been you. Well, here's the thing. I'm in charge. I'm Abram. Well, here's the thing. I've never liked you anyway, Abram. Right? Yeah, but you're the one who's wrong. You've got more money than me, so why don't you just take this one? And the snowball continues. The problem of pride. It was Abram who was called to Canaan. It would be Abram who was promised the land, right? Not Lot. Lot was not promised the land. Abram was promised the land. Lot is not Abram's son. The land was promised to Abram and his children. It was not promised to Lot. And yet when it was time to make peace, who made the decision to make peace? The man with the promises. The man who could have stood his ground and said, No, Lot, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going, I have the power here. I have the opportunity here. I'm going to do it. But yet it was Abram who was willing to take the place of humility necessary and yield his rights in order to secure peace. Now, we've talked before in this series about forgiveness and the fact that if we are indeed crucified with Christ, as we ought to be, the concept of standing up for my rights is one fraught with biblical inconsistencies. Dead men have no rights. And if I am crucified with Christ and risen to walk in newness of life, then for me to stand on my rights is for me to stand in a place that I don't stand anymore. My rights are laid up with my Savior in heaven, along with my treasure and along with my hope. So that especially if the thing that I'm fighting over is some material asset, some treasure laid up on this earth, it is absolutely inconsistent for me to, 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 to secure or to, to uh, yield spiritual values on the altar of physical conflicts. It makes no sense from a biblical perspective. It makes perfect sense from a human perspective. It makes perfect sense from the ideas of pride or personal rights or entitlements or authority. But it makes no sense spiritually. To that end, no matter what God might ask me to yield in this life, no matter what man might take from me in this life, if it is in service to the principles of the life that is to come, that yielding is absolutely worth it every time. That's what the Bible tells us. To yield a temporal right or a temporal asset on the altar of eternal riches is maybe a hardship in this life, but it is a blessing for eternity as long as I have the proper spiritual perspective. And as I was thinking through this, every time I come to this passage, uh, I, I am stirred by Abram's choice here. And it brings, me to, it brings me back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, where we read this in verses 1 through 8. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, 
Not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore it is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So as Paul speaks here in 1 Corinthians 6 of a scenario. 1 Corinthians is a book of rebuke. Uh, he is rebuking the Corinthian church. 14 out of the 16 chapters are in fact rebuke. And um, so there's a lot of rebuke happening. And this is certainly one of those rebukes. The Church of Corinth is a place where believers were taking each other to what we might consider today to be civil courts as a means of mediating between disputes regarding wrongs committed. We can very safely assume that we're not talking here about criminal wrongs. We're not talking about murder and theft and those sorts of things in the, in the normal sense, but possibly things such as civil wrongs, like in a modern civil court, financial disputes, contractual disputes and the like. Possibly also and probably also, maybe even more likely also, relational issues. Issues. So-and-so has wronged me in this way, and I'm going to go before and it, what, what would be in our day modern counselors and therapists, right? The people that you're going to sit down and you're going to complain about one another, and they're going to help you think about your feelings and work uh, on some sort of conflict resolution. So believers were in conflict with one another, not criminally, maybe civilly, possibly relationally. And that's something that's inevitably going to happen in this life, right? Within this church, if you hang around, there's going to be problems. And it's not because you're a bad person in the, in, in the sense of you're uniquely malicious, or I'm a bad person in the sense that I'm uniquely malicious. We're all bad people, right? But it's not that we are uniquely bad or malicious people. It's that we're human. And humans, human relationships are hard. And we, we, we struggle to get along because... Communication is not easy, and because pride is a real thing, and because miscommunication abounds, and so things are going to happen. There's going to be problems. And as it relates to the church of Corinth, when they were having these problems, be they civil issues or be they relational issues, they were bringing them before civil magistrates of some sort, maybe, maybe counselors, therapists as well. We, we don't really exactly know. Some sort of authority to arbitrate these conflicts. And Paul rebukes them for this, reasoning with them that even the least esteemed member of the church, as long as he is still a spiritual man, has more wisdom and capacity to see clearly the right path for restitution and reconciliation than the very wisest unbelieving magistrate. Why would that be? Well, Paul already mentioned it earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because the natural man, the carnal man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, neither can they, he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Which means when you are going to a group of unbelievers to arbitrate between your problems and another person's problems, they might have a lot of interesting um, strategies at their disposal for that mediation, but what they will not have is spiritual insight. They will not have biblical principles at their disposal if they are not spiritually discerned people. So Paul says even the least esteemed person in the church is actually a better mediator for this conflict than some unbeliever that you would bring these things before. And so 
Because the, uh, yes, because the believing, unbelieving magistrate cannot be spiritual, he cannot relate himself to these things. He cannot particularly highlight the responsibilities that the scriptures tell us to have one toward another, the kind of responsibilities that we're seeking to highlight this morning, the responsibilities of humility and of deference. So Paul exhorts them, rather, to bring their conflicts to the church. Again, as it relates to matters of civil dispute or relationship problems. We mentioned this before already also. The church has had a bit of a problem with this passage of Scripture historically in that someone has done something criminal. And the church has said, we're just going to deal with this in-house. No, that's not what this is talking about. And we know that's not what this is talking about because Paul explicitly says in Romans that God has ordained government to punish evil and reward good. He has explicitly ordained that the government does not bear the sword in vain. So the church has no right to strip from government its ordained purpose and keep in-house criminal problems. If there are criminal problems happening in the church, the church needs to send it to the proper authorities to deal with. We're not talking about criminal problems here. We're talking about relational issues, civil issues, the sorts of things that are not criminal in scope. Okay? But the true relevance and power of this passage is actually found in verses 7 and 8, where Paul says this Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud in that your brethren. Paul says if you're going to have a dispute where you need a mediator and arbitrate between you, at least choose someone in the church. But then he asks this question, and this is actually the point here. But you know what would be better? Why don't you just absorb that wrong? Why don't you just suffer yourself to be defrauded? What a thought. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? Paul says, why not just do that? Why not forgive? Suffer yourself to be defrauded and move on. Well, pastor, because then he'll think he won. So? Pastor, then he won't learn his lesson. Is him learning his lesson your responsibility? Your privilege? Is that really on your shoulders? Is that what God has ordained you to do? Are you the lesson teacher in the church? Are you the one who is going to go about from person to person withholding the, the things and, and meeting out consequences upon people that they might learn the lessons they're supposed to learn? Is that your responsibility? Well, pastor, then I won't get satisfaction. I will lose out on something. It's my money. It's my honor. It's my reputation. Now we're getting to it. Now we're actually getting down to why it is you don't want to do that. You don't want to absorb the wrong. You don't want to suffer. You don't want to forgive. You are fighting for yourself in this thing. You want satisfaction. You want justice. And this is not unusual. As a matter of fact, this is very natural. You say, Pastor, you're, you're judging me. I, I, I'm not judging. I'm, I'm reading scripture, Okay. But I'm not, I'm not doing anything of the sort. And if this is you this morning, if you're struggling with this thing this morning, I'm not telling you that you're the only one. I just said this is usual. This is human. 
But what we are going for in our interactions with each other is not human. We're going for divine. We're not going for carnal. We're going for spiritual. That's what we're looking for. Right? That's the point. Abram and Lot were in conflict. Their servants were in conflict. The land could not sustain them both. Something had to give. Abram had every right to make sure Lot was the one who had to give. He had the power. He had the authority. He had every right. But that may have come at the cost of relationship. Maybe, maybe not. But here's what we know. What gave was Abram. He humbled himself. He looked at his nephew and he said, you go whichever way you want. I'll take the leftovers. And I'm fine with that. Let there not be conflict between me and you. And that's an act of humility. Allowing Lot to have that first pick. Settling the conflict and preserving the relationship. And I would ask you to think about your own relationships this morning, Christian. And those interactions where things standing in the way of peace are material, maybe emotional in nature. Two men who both know that they've acted foolishly, but neither is going to be the first to humble himself. Well, he acted more foolishly than me. Okay, make your part right. Step up. Humble yourself. Make it right. Pastor, he's far more wrong than I am. Who cares? Make your part right. Humble yourself. Pastor, what if he doesn't humble himself? Not your problem. Do what's right. Do your part. Leave the rest to God. Pastor, if I forgive them and move on, then everyone will think I gave in, that I gave up, that I lost the battle, that I was the one in the wrong. Who cares if you lose a battle on the earth to gain reward in heaven? Is that really a loss? I mean, is it? If, if people think that I must have been the one in the wrong because I'm the one that humbled myself and I'm the one that, 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 that asked for forgiveness and I'm the one that reconciled my side of the relationship. And again, as it comes to reconciliation of relationship, that's a two-way street, right? Forgiveness, forgiveness in, in, its, in its essential nature is a one-way street. I can forgive someone and I can, I can make sure I'm right in my heart toward them and if they don't make themselves right with me, the relationship will not be reconciled, but at least my heart is right. Then there's reconciliation. And again, I have no control over that because that's a two-way street. But if your concern is that somehow people will think you must have been in the wrong because you are the one that humbled yourself, that's their problem, not yours. You did what was right. And there's a reward for that. Pastor, if I suffer the wrong, I'll lose something. I'll lose money. I'll lose time. I'll lose a bunch of investment. I'll lose effort. Okay, but if you do what is right, can you believe that God can make up the difference? Can the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills take care of the fact that you lost some money because you humbled yourself and did what was right? Because you absorbed a wrong. Because you deferred so that you might maintain relationship. And the essence of the question is this, Christian. Has God given you as his child the right to advocate for yourself Defend yourself and provide for yourself? Or has God asked you to allow him to be your advocate, your defender, and your provider? And we'll close by answering that question out of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is a wonderful passage of scripture that calls us to follow an example ourselves. 
You say, well, pastor, I've got my rights, I've got my pride, I've got my honor, I've got these things. If, if I were to step aside and I were to humble myself and people think that I'm the one that lost this battle, then they're going to think that I was the one that was in the wrong and I'm going to lose my testimony. And if I lose my testimony, then I'm not going to be able to serve, serve Jesus anymore. And Jesus would certainly want me to serve him. Therefore, I've got to stand on my, my rightness. I can't absorb that wrong Except that doesn't work. And the reason why is because when we seek unto the example of the utmost of humility and deference, absorbing a wrong that was not his to absorb in order to sustain or, or, or secure relationship, we can look into no better place than Jesus Christ himself. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus, being the one who is God in flesh, had every right to stand on his rights, had every right to impose the wrong upon those who had wronged him. And yet instead, what does the Bible say? But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that was not just a death, but that was a shameful, scornful, painful death. It was the death of one who was to be made an example of. It was the death whereby people looked and shook their heads as they walked by and said, this guy must have been a pretty bad guy if he's up there. And Jesus took that. He absorbed that that he might secure our forgiveness, that he might secure relationship. With these results, and Jesus knew these results were coming, this was the promise, this was why he did it. Verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name, excuse me, and, uh, well, oh yes, I just didn't switch this, my apologies, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as I've exhorted you unto this today, we see a glimmer of this in Abram. We see Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, why not rather take the wrong? Why not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded instead of defrauding yourself and fighting back? What we're really, the call is simply this, have the mind of Christ in your relationships. Jesus, who did in fact have every right to be honored and respected and regarded and obeyed and worshiped, yet humbled himself before his father, became a servant, obedient unto the death of the cross, yielded every right, yielded to the advocacy of his father. And he did this, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, choosing the rewards of heaven that he might be exalted, that he might have a name which is above every name, choosing those rewards above the rights that he had on this earth. Choosing the path of humility on this earth that God, the Father, might exalt him in due time. And my question is, what about your relationships today, Christian? Are you in a place where you have hardened yourself? You've been defrauded. 
You've been wronged. You've been hurt. You've been betrayed. And you say, I have to have satisfaction. I have a right to satisfaction. I'm the one in the right. I've not done the wrong. Well, you had not done the wrong until you failed to forgive. You had not done the wrong until you failed to absorb that. And now you're in a place of pride. Now you're in a place of selfishness. Now you're in a place perhaps of unforgiveness, of bitterness, of resentment. These are cancers. We already talked about that. We won't go back into that today. But may I just encourage you. Have the mind of Christ. What Abram manifested in part, Jesus reflected in full. Now we're not called to follow, to be followers of Abram. But we are called to be followers of Christ. And may God help us this morning to be willing to dispose ourselves in this way. Why not rather take the wrong? Why not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded? Why not rather absorb that, that there might be a relational opportunity there? An opportunity to reconcile with your brother. And may God help us to live in this manner of humility before him. Not because we are really excited about being at some sort of material or emotional disadvantage on this earth. But because we believe that by following Christ, by having the mind of Christ in this earth, we can take part in his exaltation in the world to come. That's the reward, Christian. So we elevate our relationships. We elevate that humility. For God's sake... And of course, for we who have the eyes to see, the way the scriptures call us to see, it's not just for God's sake, is it? It's for my sake as well. It's for the joy that is set before me. It's for the reward that is promised for me as I bear the mind of Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.